0: me, what's really interesting is that it, this is a trainable trait. That this isn't just something that some people are born to suffer. It's like if if you do a couch to 5K program where you start training, we all know that your muscles are going to get stronger and your heart's going to get stronger and so on. But what's also happening is you're increasing your ability to tolerate discomfort in a way that's transferable, transferable to other areas of your life, and it's something that you, even among well-trained athletes. Their ability to tolerate discomfort kind of waxes and wanes over the course of a season, and it's at its highest when they're when they're right close to their goal competition. So we, it's, it's not something you learn once and you're done. It's something you're constantly developing. Is this ability to just be comfortable being uncomfortable? Hi, I'm Pete McCall, and
1: thank you for tuning in to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. That voice you just heard in the beginning is a guest for this episode. Physicist, runner, and author, Alex Hutchinson. Now before I get into the full introduction for Alex, have you heard of the new app called Clubhouse? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What we all need is another social media app. But the concept of Clubhouse is really interesting. I joined it just a week or two ago, and I've been playing around with it a little bit, and I've already hosted my first Clubhouse. Now, what you do on Clubhouse, when you join Clubhouse, you can hop into chat rooms of real live chats. No visuals, no videos, no photos, just people having conversations. You have a moderator, you have guests, and then you have an audience. I've already done my first All About Fitness Clubhouse, and I plan on doing one a week. As soon as I set out a time schedule, I'll be posting it on the All About Fitness podcast Instagram feed. So if you're not already joining the All About Fitness podcast on Instagram, please go to Instagram, look for the All About Fitness podcast, join it, because I'll be posting while I'll be live on Clubhouse. Now, the goal of being involved on Clubhouse is I want to let you in a little bit on behind the scenes of what's happening with All About Fitness. I'm going to recap recent episodes. I'm going to preview upcoming episodes. And most importantly, it's a chance to interact with you, the audience, and you guys can give me feedback on what you want to hear more of and on different types of guests. The Clubhouse I I hosted the other night, I got some great ideas for what I might do for upcoming episodes. So if you're not on Clubhouse, look for Clubhouse, download it, join it, and keep an eye out for the All About Fitness Clubhouse chats that I'll be hosting. It doesn't cost you anything. I just want to be able to interact with you, the audience, and get ideas from what you want to see. On that note, I do have an All About Fitness podcast YouTube channel. I'm posting a lot of interviews up there. When I get a chance to record the interview on video, I'll be posting the interview up there. This interview is on the All About Fitness podcast channel on YouTube, but it's recorded previously, so you have to go back and look for it. It doesn't have the video image of Alex and I chatting, but it has a static image of the All About Fitness logo. Now, let's get into the introduction for Alex because Alex really has a fascinating background. First, I recorded this episode a couple years ago. I'm rerunning it now because we talk about endurance training. The previous two episodes of All About Fitness, you've heard me talk about high-intensity interval training with Dr. Martin Gabala and my quick fit tip. But what I wanted to bring you today by rerunning this episode was to have a conversation about endurance training. Even though HIIT can be extremely effective, it's still necessary to do steady-state training. It's a very great Even though HIT can be extremely effective, it's still necessary to do some steady-state endurance training. Alex's background was he was a member of the Canadian National Running Team. He actually has a PhD in physics before he became a fitness writer. He writes the Sweat Science column for Outside Magazine. He also writes the Jockology column for Canadian newspaper the Globe and Mail. So yes, I am running two Canadians in a row, but Canadians do some great work in the area of fitness. What we talk about in this episode is Alex's recent book, Endure: Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. As the name insinuates, the book reviews the upper limits of how the human body can perform in relation to endurance training. That's why I wanted that's why I'm rerunning this interview, is I want to give you a different perspective besides just HIT, because hey, we need to do any type of exercise, endurance, hit, strength training, whatever it is. Because exercise can enhance your quality of life. Now, if you want to learn more about exercise, if you want to learn how to enhance your life through exercise, pick up a copy of my book, Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. It teaches you how to do metabolic conditioning. It teaches how to do strength training, mobility training, everything you need to know to write the programs to get you results. I also have an e-book, Exercise Program Designed for the Fountain of Youth. I talk about endurance, strength, power, the types of exercise that can help slow down the aging process. My ebook is a prequel for my upcoming book, Ageless Intensity. If you're not ready to make a commitment to buying one of the books, then go to the website, PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's PeteMcCallFitness.com. If you sign up for the mailing list, I will send you a chapter and a workout from Smarter Workouts so you can try it before you buy it. And don't worry, I'm not going to spam your email box I'm going to send out one or two high-quality emails a month where I give you insights for how to use exercise the right way. Let's get into this interview with Alex Hutchinson. This is an exciting conversation about endurance training and pushing the limits of human performance. I'm speaking today with writer, author, outdoor adventurer Alex Hutchinson from Canada. Alex, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you do and, and your background in fitness or in the exercise science community?
0: Sure. I, I guess I, the 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 main title I would give myself is I'm a science journalist. I write about uh, research and evidence and things like that. And my my particular focus is kind of endurance, health, and fitness. Uh, I've I, I currently write a column for Outside Magazine called Sweat Science, where the 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 basic idea is just looking at new studies that are coming out or evidence and questions and trying to understand what we know and what we don't know about uh, you know any sort of question about uh, like I said, health and fitness. Although my, my, my personal background, which I should mention is I'm a, I'm a runner and I, I, I uh, uh, former national team runner for, for Canada. So my, my bias is towards endurance. I, I tend to write a lot about, uh, endurance sports, running, cycling, and also about sort of outdoor, you know, backpacking and things like that. But I'm, I'm interested in all of it and, and I'm not, uh, I'm not a, a fitness professional. I'm a, a guy who talks to fitness professionals and to researchers to understand what it is they're doing and to to try and convey some of those messages to the general public.
1: Well, that's excellent because what I try to do with this podcast, Alex, is try to educate the general public. I like to call it the NPR fitness podcast because I want to have a little bit higher level discussion. And I'm really, I'm, I'm really trying to get after those, those. Uh, you know, I'm in my mid 40s right now, and my my goal is to try to help people over the age of 35 learn how to enjoy their favorite exercise activities into their advanced years. Is that something that, you know, that you write about in your column?
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and as a guy who's entering my mid forties, I, uh, you know, that, that mission seems all the more urgent, you know, it was great when I was, you know, 21 and I could go and play whatever sport I wanted. And, and it just seemed like fun. But, uh, at this point, I, I you know, I look around at my, uh, at my friends from, from university and beyond and, uh, people's, people's lives are starting to change with, uh, with, you know, career and family responsibilities and their, their bodies are starting to change and, and their activity patterns are starting to change. And, uh, you know, one of the big things that I have looked at a lot is what, what is aging? Like we we all know what the difference between a typical 55 year old and the 25 year old is how much of that is, is sort of, the inevitable ticking of the clock, and how much of that is changing of lifestyle? How much of that, you know, are we getting slower and weaker because we don't exercise or move or or stay active as much, or is it inevitable? And of course, you know, not to not to give away the answers, but uh, I, I think we've I think we've greatly overestimated how much of physical decline is inevitable with aging. And, and a lot of it is just that we, uh, we we have to find ways of staying active and continuing to be as active as we were when we were 15 or 21 or whatever the case may be.
1: Well, it's interesting. It, you know, I want to stay on this for a second because I, when I when I speak with younger students and, and I, t- I teach uh, part-time in a community college, my advice to them is just never stop. It is absolutely just you can slow down. Life is going to get in the way. And, and that's one of the reasons why I started this, started this podcast, in all honesty, Alex, is I, I was getting two, maybe three emails a month from college friends or people I played rugby with over the years. It's like I got out of shape. How do I get back in shape? And then my number one advice is don't let yourself get out of shape, or, or you know, no matter what, stay stay active, stay active with that. And, and I want to ask you a quick question, you know, to kind of to go into like your interest level on in this.
0: You are a physicist by education, correct? Uh, that, that's true. I, 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 started out, I did a PhD in physics and then I, I worked as a physics researcher until, uh, until I was 28 actually. And then I decided it's too, too hard and not, I wasn't passionate enough, enough about it. So I, I made a switch to journalism at that point, but yeah, I started out as a physicist. Well,
1: I think that's such a, so when you are I mean, when you did that, obviously you're, you're an athlete, you're cause you grew up as an endurance runner, you know, in high school and college, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was a runner right from the start. And what was your distance? What was your, or what is your favorite distance when you were competing?
0: Uh, probably my best distance, objectively, was the the mile or the fifteen hundred meters, um, which is you know it's about a four minute race. Um, so it's you know relative to things like marathons, it's, it is quite a short race. I, I also did I've done longer races and I ran you know five k's quite seriously too. But uh, yeah, I think of myself as a miler, uh, by sort of, that's that's what my physiology intended me to to emphasize. Cool. I don't
1: want to come back to No, one of my early podcasts, one of my colleagues that, that I work with is a woman named uh, Sonia Franduil, and she's, I think she has a world record right now on the indoor mile, so she's, uh, I think she's just moved up. She's in the 47 age bracket, and she's been ripping up on the U.S. Master Athletes, so it's interesting. I didn't realize that you're, you ran that middle distance. What's the most challenging thing for you uh, about running the mile?
0: Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. You know that it's, it's, I was just having a conversation with uh, someone earlier today who had uh, just run a 50 miler and he was an ex miler in college too. And he was trying to articulate what the difference is between running a mile and, and running a 50 miler. And, and they are very, very different. Uh, the, the mile is, uh, you, you know, my first, the first, the, what, how I would have described this for a long time is I would have said the mile is really painful. It really hurts you uh, once you get to the third lap or so. It's just like you, every core of your of your being is trying to tell you to stop. Um, after writing the book that I just finished writing, uh, trying to understand the limits of endurance, I would actually make a distinction between effort and pain. And so the pain was the pain is bad when you run a mile. But what's really through the roof is your sense of effort. and which is what what researchers just define as the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop, because your legs are just not work, they stop working. You're, and it feels like you're running through like uh, like cement. And yet you have to keep up the pace if you want to run a, a good time. so there's there's a real intense struggle in the mile. That you don't get even even with a marathon, which is much more of a slow burn. The mile is you're you're you know you're being dunked right in the in the deep end, and it's uh, it, you know it's funny. I, I I'm trying to I'm trying to imagine it right now to explain it, and it's like you can't remember what it's like when you're not there, and that that's, that's <laughs> like one it's just like the human it's It's a, an important part of the way the mind works is we can never remember the really painful elements because otherwise we would never do them again. So uh, well, anyway, yeah. that's a, that's a vague description, but it's kind of like I'm hoping I hope I'm conveying I'm conveying that it's a it's a real like it's a real challenge, and you can squeeze as much effort into those four minutes as you can into a three hour marathon.
1: Well, and I think that's actually an interesting look at it because you probably, without realizing any any successful and whether it's a mile or or fifty, I think any successful successful athlete, and I was going to say endurance athlete, but I'm going to take a step back and say any successful athlete probably has that ability, Alex, to shut off that mechanism where their brain tells them to stop. And you've, as you've been looking at this and for your book, is that is that a common denominator that you've seen um, among various athletes? Is that ability to kind of just put aside it, for whatever it is, whether it's physical, physiological, psychological, is that a common denominator, the ability to kind of set aside that that brain mechanism saying stop, and they just kind of over override
0: that. Yeah, absolutely. And and what's interesting, so there's there's lots of uh, research looking at this and showing that you know athletes tend to have they, they feel the pain, feel feel pain the same as everyone else. They're not like immune to it, but they're able to just deal with it for longer uh, or or you know uh, deal with higher levels of of discomfort. And to me, what's really interesting is that it. This is a trainable trait, that this isn't just something that some people are born to suffer. It's like if if you do a couch to 5K program where you start training, we all know that your muscles are going to get stronger and your heart's going to get stronger and so on. But what's also happening is you're increasing your ability to tolerate discomfort in a way that's transferable, transferable to other areas of your life. And it's something that you, even among well-trained athletes... Their ability to tolerate discomfort kind of waxes and wanes over the course of a season, and it, it it's at its highest when they're when they're right close to their goal competition. So we it's it's not something you learn once and you're done. It's something you're constantly developing. Is this ability to just be comfortable being uncomfortable?
1: Well, and and, and that to kind of ties in what I want to come back and ask you about your study of physics, because you know when you look at the basic you know equation of it, you have your second rule is what F equals M A and you extrapolate that out, you have per power, you know, you have work equals force times distance and then power equals work over time or force times velocity. Is your experience as a runner, did that kind of help you go down? Was that, was that one of the motivators that kind of helped you go down the path of physics was trying to get, understand how to get more, how to do more in, in a specific period of time?
0: It's, it's interesting. You know, I, for a long time, I, I I didn't really look at I didn't really think about connections between physics and sports. And when I did, I think my experience in physics led me to to want to see sports in that way as a as a mathematically calculatable thing. Where you can, you know, if I knew uh, all the the parameters of my body, I could calculate what my limits were and find out whether I was running to my potential. And the evolution has, for, for me has actually been away from that to realizing that uh, you know w- my ability to, to run a 1500 meters or to do any other task isn't something I can calculate in the lab, that it ends up depending much more on some very um, hard to measure, or hard to quantify t- uh, elements of my you know, of my mind and my, my psychology. that of course, yeah, you have to understand what the, the sort of basic constraints, placed by physics on you are but uh you know it was it was sort of for me frustrating for a time that it's like i could never predict what i was going to run you never you could never just sort of say well i know my vo2 max and i know my lactate threshold and i know my running economy therefore i should be able to run x for a race And, and so i you know all that 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 aspect or that way of thinking about performance i think is interesting as a starting point but it's it's uh it's incomplete. You can't. You, it, it turns out that it's it, you can't predict who's a winner just based on the, the the sort of the forces and vectors that uh, that you calculate from their for their body.
1: Well, and that's interesting. That brings to mind one of your recent columns that, that that I read through in preparing for this, Alex. Was you talk about the psychosocial relationship and that sometimes perfectionists seem to get more injuries? You know what what is that? What are you referring to? And, and why would a perfectionist be at a at a higher risk of injury? from, from pursuing an activity.
0: Yeah, this was really interesting to me. That, so there, there was a study that was presented at the American college of sports medicine, uh, annual meeting, and it's just preliminary results for now, but, um, they, they took a, 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 a college cross country team and they gave them a psychological test at the start of the season to identify which of them had a sort of mix of, of perfectionist striving and, and worrying too much about mistakes and doubting themselves, but, uh, but setting really high goals and then they track them through the season to see, well, which of these runners are going to get most injured? And, and there was an enormous difference that the runners who had strong perfectionist tendencies were way more likely to get injured. Now, in a sense, you might say, well, this, this is silly. If they're perfectionists, they should be uh, really good at, you know, taking care of the details and, and uh, you know, understanding when they need a break and, and uh, you know, uh, doing their rehab yeah. exercises or their stretching or whatever the case may be um, really diligently. But in fact, what seems to be the overriding thing is if they're perfectionists, they're, they're driven to perform more and more. And they just always have the sense that, uh, you know, if they can train a little more, that they'll be able to be a little bit, you know, perform a little better and that they can, they can, you know, brush off any little, uh, aches and pains they have, and it won't come back to haunt them, which, which is, turns out not to be true. They, they, they the actual stat was they were 17 times more likely to get injured than the the people without these perfectionist tendencies. So it's it's kind of a reminder that it's that in, in a sense the body isn't just a machine. You can't just uh, you know calculate the correct inputs that my body needs forty eight miles per week at such and such a pace, and therefore I'm going to do that. You have to be constantly responding to the 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 surroundings, and it may not be that it's you know it may be that you're you have an exam that week, and so you haven't got as much sleep as you need. And so that's the the sort of external factor that that's saying you need to run less mileage this week, but if you're if you're too focused on the goals and on the outcome, you're not able to to pick up those those warning signs. That's interesting,
1: and because this is from I haven't really worked with, with super high level athletes. You know, I've been a personal trainer in commercial gym for for much of the past twenty years, and and I really I liked what you wrote, and I liked the fact that somebody researched that. Because it's been my observation in a gym setting and much more so. I used to live in Washington, D.C. And in Washington, D.C., you get a lot of type A perfectionist personalities. And I made a pretty good living, you know, helping, you know, repair runners, helping them, you know, work around or get through or rehab from injuries that they got from exactly what you described. Is that trying to do a little bit more, trying to fat go a little bit faster. Because I think our mentality is, and this is much more of an American thing that, you know, you being Canadian – you, you probably see it from a distance, is Americans, we think that if, if a little bit is good, then more must be better. So American runners, I think, would tend to go at a higher volume or push a faster pace to try to get more in. You know, and then another column to juxtapose, this is where I'm going with the question, Alex, is you talk about recovery. And what, was your, what has been your experience in, in learning, writing about recovery that's helped change your, your kind of opinion or your, your thought process as a runner yourself?
0: yeah recovery is this huge, huge, huge kind of rat's nest of of beliefs and and theories and and evidence and of course, we're all interested in it right? like because like you said we we all kind of want to do a little bit more, be able to push harder and yet be ready to do it again tomorrow or the next day and so if if an ice bath or if compression socks or if a massage or you know an antioxidant or well, you know, you name it. There's a it's a it's a billion dollar industry, right? Of 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 uh, products marketed to a to that claim to make you recover faster. And as an athlete, you're always looking for these kinds of things. And so when I was competing, I was always I was taking things like ice baths, and uh, because you know it's like they feel like they're doing something. And you know, I was a full believer in ice baths as an athlete. As a science journalist, as I've tried to look into the evidence, I, I've gone. A few phases, uh, you know, and the, the first phase is you, you, you look at the evidence and it's like there's basically no good evidence that things like ice baths work. And there have been literally hundreds of studies of ice baths trying to understand whether they, you know, reduce inflammation or accelerate muscle recovery or, you know, whatever the case may be. And the, the the evidence is always very equivocal and it's always confounded by placebo effects. And so you can you can get to a point where you're like, this is all a bunch of crap. Nothing works forget it, you know, like it just, just, uh, you know, get a good night's sleep and, uh, you know, make sure you eat dinner. And, and that's, that's all you can do these days. I, I'm, I take a a more nuanced position because it is, it's very hard to, 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 to measure what athletes care about, which is whether they feel better and can perform better a day or two later. And, and I mentioned, you know, the problem, the placebo problem. So you, and, and let, let me give you a specific example of a study that i thought was was pretty interesting they they had athletes do a hard workout so they were going to be sore the next day then some of them took an ice bath uh, some of them took a, a sort of warm bath just kind of or body temperature bath so it's, they got the same water but not it wasn't cold and some of them took the warm bath but they were given some special recovery oil which they were told would make the the warm bath just as effective as an ice bath and so the results found that over the next couple of days, the athletes who had the ice bath recovered more quickly than the athletes who had the warm bath, but the athletes who got the recovery oil in their bath did just as well or maybe even a little bit better than those who did, had the ice bath. And the, the the catch is that the recovery oil was just bath soap. So it's like so you, on the one hand you you have this result saying, well, ice baths are no better than than, you know, soap. But on the other hand, you have this result saying, well, both ice baths and soap were better than nothing. And so it's a placebo effect, but the athletes did recover faster. You know, something's going on in their brain, or their 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 uh, you know their their sense of belief is creating, making them act in a way that's that's allowing them to to return to, to full strength more quickly. So what do you tell to an athlete who wants to recover? Do you say don't do anything, and then their competitors are getting an advantage over them, even though even if it's a placebo placebo effect. So. And and then, you know, meanwhile, there may be some real effects too, like, you know, ice baths do have, you know, anti-inflammatory effects and things like that. So this is a very long-winded answer, but I guess to, to, to kind of sum up what I'm saying is I think uh, most of the things we do or spend money on, you know, you can, you can spend, you can, you know, rent time in a cryosana for tens of thousands, that costs a hundred thousand bucks or whatever, and will flash freeze your muscles there's very little evidence that that stuff does much, but there's very strong anecdotal evidence that athletes who do things like take ice baths or get massages feel better and feel like they're recovering more quickly. And that's not something to be, to be laughed at. So I, so my, my, my bottom line advice is I don't think you need to worry or, or go around chasing the latest recovery technology. If you're taking care of your nutrition and your sleep and, and your and you know programming in enough recovery into your, into your training plan but i am not i i'm no longer going around saying or i'm not going around saying never do any of this stuff it's all it's all a fraud because it's pretty hard to figure out what it is that's working and not working for people
1: well it's interesting you say that and and, and this is going to come back to that discussion about mental like how much of this is really mind over matter and the one thing that we've seen over the last number of years is that there's been like you, as you mentioned there've been a number of re- recovery products introduced to the market i remember you know years ago in 2011 i started doing a talk at various fitness conferences called "You Know Recovery: The Forgotten Variable," just about how we need to start remembering to, to coach our clients about recovery strategies. And at, at that time, maybe there might be one or two recovery, there are like foam rolls, you know, for self-massage release, and one or two other things, but they weren't really being promoted as re, as recovery. Now, this past year, when I went to the National Strength and Conditioning Association, I went to their annual meeting, their annual conference. Probably thirty to forty percent of the goods for sale two strength coaches who work with, with athletes of all levels were recovery focused. So it really is, it's interesting to see how that, how that happens. Do you think that that kind of ties into this belief that, that our mind might be the more, most important muscle in our body?
0: Well, I, you know, I, I would say that the growth in the, the, the number of products is actually kind of riding on the opposite, it's kind of saying it's all about your body. If you can make sure your muscle fibers are, you know, adequately hydrated and whatever, you know, not inflamed, that's going to be the magic. But where I think the counter message is what you're saying, which is that actually recovery is less about, you know, using the the, the magical infrared recovery device or whatever it is, and more about... Getting into a good state of mind after a workout, getting some recovery, not being stressed out, you know, so that you're not sitting around with elevated cortisol levels 24 hours a day because you're you're never giving yourself a chance to to sort of decompress uh, and get a good night's sleep and, and and you know eat and drink and all these sorts of things. So I think to to me the real, uh, you know, the part of the recognition of the mind's role is. The recognition that taking care of the basics, the things like sleep and 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 nutrition and stuff, isn't just about the body; that it is also about getting yourself in a good mental state, uh, and and making sure that you're allowing your body to to recover uh, under its own steam, uh, that that's maybe more important than than what some of the sort of external recovery aids might be able to do. Well, and I think that that actually kind of ties into it because if somebody
1: you know, pays a hundred dollars. You know, for a pair of compression tights for for sleeping, or if they buy a foam roll and spend twenty minutes, you know, rolling on the ground in front of the TV in the evening after after a hard workout. I think just the fact that they feel like they're doing something for their body would probably be just as important as, as what they're actually doing. Would that seem to be what some of the evidence you know supports?
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think I think. First first of all, like, the, you know, if you commit to commit to doing something, whether by, you know, whether it's painful or whether it costs money, you, uh, you, then you're, you're going to recognize the power of that intervention much more so. And it's going to have a more powerful effect on you. And also it just, it's, you know, in some ways it's about creating a routine and, you know, you, you make that foam rolling part of your routine. Uh, you know, maybe the foam rolling is good, but maybe just, thinking about recovery, you know, that becomes part of your routine. And if it if you're, if you're focused on recovery, it, it also reminds you that you should also get in some calories and, and, you know, get to bed and all, all these sort of things like, so you just become more mindful of the whole process. So I think, you know, probably the, the good thing that has come out of the, the sort of hype that around recovery that is, that has come up is that, uh, people are uh, more aware. Like you were saying in 2011, it was, recovery was the forgotten variable. I think people are much more aware of recovery now, uh, and we, you know whatever path they they go down, hopefully they're they're making some changes that they can believe in, and and that also are going to lead them to be more recovered, rather than just not thinking about it at all, like you said. Well, that's that's kind of
1: you know that's an important thing. Cause that brings it into you know into what I want to talk about with your book. How'd you get started? I mean, obviously, if you were, uh, you know, if you're a miler, you know, kind of, you you know, your middle distance is kind of that fine line. You're not doing, you're not doing a 400 or 200 where you're really working on power and you're not doing a marathon. What got you interested in in the topic of your book and and what, what exactly, what, what does your book cover and what's it entail?
0: Yeah. So uh, the book definitely comes out of my experiences as a runner and this sort of, for anyone who's pushed their limits, you kind of, you want to know, like did, did I get it all? Did I, you know, have I run as fast as I could have run or was, or, you know, is there more in the tank or was there more in the tank? And if so, how do I, how do I get there? And so I started off with this kind of question of just wanting to understand why, you know, as, fa- as fast, as I ran, why couldn't I run faster? Um, and, and, or could I have, and I just didn't. And, and so the, the focus of the book was basically try to understand what, what is, when you push yourself to your limit in any context, when you when you reach that point where you feel like you just can't continue or you have to slow down or stop, what is it that that defines that that limit? And and you know at the start I started out with the with like I was saying before the sort of mathematical assumption that you can calculate your limits based on the properties of your heart and your lungs and your muscles and and so on and so forth. Um, but what I, I you know starting about ten years ago when I started writing about this area uh, for my for my columns, uh, I. I, I discovered that there's this whole uh, relatively new and still controversial area in exercise physiology that's trying to incorporate the brain and trying to understand what role the mind plays. and And to me, that was really fascinating to learn that you know there are studies showing that, for example, subliminal messages can alter your endurance. you're you're on a bike, someone's flashing pictures of smile of smiling faces or frowning faces just a few milliseconds at a time, so you can't even see them but the smiling faces will will increase your endurance relative to the frowning faces because they're generating a kind of sense of ease in your brain that's changing how your brain is interpreting the signals from the rest of your body from your your heart and your muscles and so on so discovering that there is this stream of research that shows that actually it's the mind that calls the shots when 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 you're reaching that that breaking point was was fascinating to me and that's where I ended up that's the thread I ended up following in my book is just trying to understand um you know, what What our limits are and in various contexts, whether you're climbing a mountain or free diving or running a marathon, uh, how does you, how does your brain uh, influence your limits and, and are there ways that you can that you can change that? Well,
1: I like that. I like that concept of it because that ties in a lot. You know, I've interviewed uh, previous interviewees include Joe Decker, who set the world, the Guinness Book of World Record for the, the world's fittest man. And he's he's won. I don't know if you know what the Spartan death race is. He's won. He's won the Spartan Death Race two times. I mean, if you're you're a sick individual, if you enter it, and you're a little bit deranged, if you finish it, but for him to win, it, it, it's mind blowing. And when you talk to people like that, and when you talk to like special you know special operations you know teams from the military, they kind of talk about being able to disassociate and go their happy place. Is that an important part of this? Is that kind of what this is looking at? Is how can we find our happy place when we're really in a lot of physical agony through exercise?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different psychological coping strategies that people come up with when they're trying to learn to push back their limits, and and you know one of them is definitely like disassociation and uh, you know distraction, just not focusing on it. It hurts, so think about something else. Um, For real top performers though, that they can't just check out. They also have to be. Uh, you know, and there's some pretty neat studies of people like Navy SEALs. You know, in brain in brain scanning studies uh, at UC San Diego, actually, where they they put people like Navy SEALs or elite adventure racers in a brain scanner, and then they do have them do cognitive tests, and then they then they put them in a stressful situation by by restricting the flow of oxygen that they're breathing and stuff. And what's interesting is that when the when things are going crazy, like when they're in this restricted breathing scenario, the uh, the, the uh, elite performers, like the Navy SEALs, they're able to not go haywire. They're not f- totally flipping out and focused on the, the problems. But the rest of the time, when un- under sort of normal operating circumstances, they're actually in a state of higher vigilance in terms of monitoring the signals from the rest of their body. So it's this balance where you want to be able to not focus on the pain, but you have to, in order to perform well, you have to be very closely in touch with your body. You have to understand how you are feeling. Uh, so, so you can't just ignore your legs. You have to know how your legs are feeling, but not let it not focus on the discomfort and also take out the emotional elephant uh, it's an elephant. That's a funny of or a funny, <laughs> uh, Freudian slip. the emotional element, uh, sometimes feels like an elephant that's trying to sit on you. But, uh, um, and this is where we get into things like, you know, people talk about mindfulness these days. Of course, it's a huge buzzword that's maybe been a little misused, but the idea of non judgmental awareness. So I know that my legs really, really, really hurt, but I'm not crying about it, I'm not screaming about it. I'm just aware that this means I'm going at a pace that I can't sustain forever. And I, so I need to be aware. Of, of how I'm feeling, but I don't need to emotionally react or overreact to it. So so it's I, I would say that to, in answer to your to your to your question is like yes, being able to get away from the pain mentally and and get into a happy place is really important. But there are more there, there's some more subtle skills to it that that also have to be involved that you develop again through through repeated exposure to discomfort. that that's you said that, and I think elephants
1: an interesting slip because, you know, the elephant in the room, that we're talking about is, so, you know, for years we've been studying human physiology. We've been studying muscles, muscle fibers, you know, how does oxygen transfer? But I think the elephant in the room that many sports scientists have missed have been that psychological component. It, could that be maybe what you meant by
0: <laughs> by, by yourself <laughs> That That is the elephant. Yeah, I mean, the, the simple picture that I – the sort of potted history that I would give is that the 20th century was all about understanding the human body as a machine, that you're – we're trying to – you know, just like you understand a car – uh, you know, how much gas is in the tank and how much air is in the tires and so on. And you can tell you, you can sort of figure out how far it's going to go or how fast it's going to go. Uh, the 20th century was all about understanding things like VO2 max and and muscle fibers and, and lactate and things like that. Um, and, and then in the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a a real shift to try and understand, to try and say, the brain isn't just something we add on, at the end that it has to be we have to include the brain in our understanding of of what it means to to, to endure now i should i should hasten to add that this doesn't mean that you know scientists in 1950 didn't think that the brain played any role in endurance of course everyone understands that the brain is is a key part but i think that in the last you know the, the 21st century approach is that it's trying to understand really uh, put the brain right in the, in the picture as opposed to kind of thinking of it as an add-on at the end. That,
1: you know, and I think you're right. I think we've seen a lot more of that understanding, whether it's visualization or meditation or, or, or playing that role. Now, I want to ask you a little bit about what it was like to, to work with the Nike Sports Science Lab, because as you mentioned, not many people get to kind of peek behind the curtain. What, what was that experience like and, and what did you learn from,
0: from working with those folks? Yeah. So they were, you know, just to give some context, they they were putting together this big attempt to run a sub two hour marathon, which they called the breaking two project. Um, and, and they had it ended up last May. So just over a year ago, they they hosted a race at a Formula One track in Northern Italy, where uh, Elliot Kipchoge, who's the uh, Olympic marathon champion from Kenya, he ended up running a marathon in two hours, zero minutes and 25 seconds. So he just missed the two hour barrier. Ah, uh, he was about two and a half minutes faster than the current world record. His race didn't didn't count as a world record because he ah uh, he had some pacemakers that were jumping in and out of the race, which is not allowed for for world records. Um but anyway, it was this big project where they'd spent multiple years, you know, maybe about three years, to you know, they were undercover for a couple of years, and then they were just you know announced what they were going to do with six months to go. and And you know, probably millions or at least or maybe tens of millions of dollars on this attempt. And so it was a really interesting chance to see, you know, what happens when when you say, okay, we want to help someone run as fast as possible, and we're willing to do anything to pull out all the stops to 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 do whatever it takes to to enable a fast race. What are the things that matter? And you know, they, they, there was there was definitely some interesting technology. Um, you know, they they had a, some new shoes that, uh, that had a carbon fiber plate embedded in the in the midsole that's supposed to make the runners more efficient. Uh, you know, they really fine-tuned the course. That's why they were at a, a, a Formula One track to make sure there were no sharp turns and no hills. Uh, they had this, they had six pacemakers running in a very specific arrowhead formation mm. uh, with they had lasers on the ground to, to being shot from a Tesla pace car in front of them to show the pacemakers where to run because they had this formation that was tested in wind tunnels and with computational fluid dynamics. So, wow. sort of, really worrying about the details and and all that stuff was interesting. And that's what I spent a lot of time writing about. Uh, I would say a year later when I think back of like what, what made that event special, I actually tend to think more about Elliot Kipchoge himself, the runner and, and, and his approach to the race because he was, he's an interesting guy. He's the Olympic champion and he's, he's got a very, very strong, he's very quiet and soft spoken, but he has a very strong presence. You can really tell he has just full of, of self-belief and, uh, and, and like the first time I met him was about six months or five months before the race. And he had just run a half marathon a little bit under an hour. And so I was asking him, okay, you're, you you a few months, you're going to try and run a marathon, you know, twice the distance at basically the same pace. How are you going to change your training to make that happen? And his answer was, uh, you know, I'm not going to change my training. The training will be the same, but my mind will be different. And at the time my, my thought was, well, that, you know, that sounds like a terrible plan. Like you, you, you're going to have to do more than just change your mind but it was it became pretty clear over time that, that this was something he was really you know pretty sincere about that that he really viewed the mental preparation as as a crucial element of this whole project and that he was he was deliberately and systematically trying to build up his belief that he was ready and capable of running this 2 hour marathon and and a lot of the research i ended up going through for my book talks about belief and self-talk and things like that and i think you know like a lot of all-time great athletes over the years and over the generations. Kipchoge is one of those guys who's found his own way or, or, uh, you know, through whatever, uh, you know, method, I I don't know, but he's found his own way of getting to that point of, you know, really creating strong self-belief and and positive self-talk.
1: Well, that comes into the next question is is, Alex, in your preparations and writing the book, what did you learn that kind of changed your your conceptions or or your perceptions about about running? I mean, if you've been, been a runner your, your career and, and you ran at a very high level, run for the Canadian national team, you know, what did you learn in doing this that, that has kind of changed your thought about maybe how we approach sports?
0: Well, you know, the funny thing is the biggest lessons I learned are things that people were telling me 20 years ago. Um, you know, we had, when I was in university, we had a, a sports psychologist, uh, who taught us things about you know negative thought stopping and motivational self-talk some of these ideas that have been out there for a long time and we we just sort of dismissed it we didn't really take it seriously or or, or try and really implement it in our in our training or racing um, and you know coming full circle going through this uh, this idea of okay well i'm a I'm an you know I'm an empiricist i I, I want to know what we can really measure and what you know, what the scientists say. And so going through all the science and then coming out the other side and dis, and re, and sort of co- having the conclusion that, okay, what really matters is self-belief and the brain and say, oh, wait, that's what they were telling me uh, 20 years ago. So y- you could say in a, in a sense that, okay, Alex, you're an idiot. You should have just believed, uh, well, you know, the sports psychologist 20 years ago. But for me, it's, uh, it, it's, it's kind of all about evidence and trying to understand how things work and why things work. And so I now have a much greater appreciation for the, the the role of the mind in achieving peak performance. This doesn't mean I think it's all in the head, uh, you know, that that uh, that you can just sort of will yourself to a great performance uh, if you believe strongly enough. That ultimately you, you have to have the tools and you have to do the work. Um, but in terms of the, the the sort of final margins where you're really trying to push your limits, um, I've I'm I'm much more of a convert to this. this idea that, that self-belief really matters. It's interesting that
1: you're talking about the
0: mind is you're, you're talking
1: about this and I'm reminded of a friend. I haven't thought about this for a while, but she ran her fastest marathon a few years ago, right? As she was getting, you know, going through the process of divorcing her husband. And, you know, she talked about, you know, kind of how cathartic it was for her to run. You know, she's like, it was, she's like, I didn't feel like I was trained for it. You know, I just, I, I was signed up for it. So I did it, but she's like, I ran my best time do you think, I mean, how does that tie into what you've learned about the mind? I'm I'm thinking there's a connection there that whether she was focused on what she was going through personally, or whether she became more focused on the race that allowed her mind to kind of disassociate, you know, how does that, you know, listen to that. I mean, is that something that, that kind of ties into the mind body, you know, performance connection?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes, uh, you know, it's a cliche to say, but sometimes uh, we're holding ourselves back in ways that we don't even realize by, by, you know, focusing too much on, you know, how hard it is or or what our limitations are and maybe a distraction uh, just kind of it clears the mind and allows you to to run the way your body's capable of. I mean, I have a, one of the stories that I have, have sort of thought a lot about lately uh, in, in terms of trying to understand where my interest in this topic comes from is that I had my, my biggest breakthrough uh, as a track athlete, when I was in third year university, um, the, the the timekeeper who was calling out the splits uh, at every lap, he he must have started his watch wrong because he was his splits were off by about three seconds, hmm. which I didn't discover till after the race. But so he he tricked me into thinking I was having an amazing race, like way faster than I'd ever run before, and as a result. I was like, oh, this is a great race. Don't waste this. Just put your head down and run. And I ran a huge personal best after I'd been stuck at it. I'd been trying to break four minutes for four years. I'd been stuck at 401 or 402 for 1,500 meters. And, and that day I ran 352, wow. which I att- attribute almost entirely to the fact that this guy took me into a different place mentally. Instead of instead of going through there and thinking, okay, I need to run 32 seconds for every 200 meters. i th- uh, Am I on pace for four? I'm, oh, no, I'm not going to make four again. Oh. He, he took me into a place where I was like, Whoa, I'm way ahead of place, but I feel good. Just don't even worry about the splits, just run. And so I was able to kind of get out of my own way. And so maybe that, maybe something like that is what happened to your friend that she was I, able I, to well, not I love, think about. It.
1: Sorry, I love that story because, yeah, if you think, and that just shows that, that power of positive thought because how many people would say if they heard their first split, Oh, no, you know, you, you get that negative self talk. But if you get that first split and you're three seconds under what you thought you should be. All of a sudden, you're like, "Hell yeah, I'm doing this!" And you
0: you kick it up a pace. And that sounds was that your experience? Yeah, it's, you know, I had I had kind of two conflicting thoughts. Which one of which was like the, the the rational part of my mind was like, "Oh boy, you're in trouble. You've gone out way too fast." But the other part of my mind was like, "But it feels good. You feel good." <laughs> and after after it happened in the second lap, you're like, "Really fast, but feels good." This, I mean, something good is happening. And the you know the third. 200 meter split after that, I was just like, okay, stop listening to the splits because something great is happening and you don't want to waste this. So yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, I don't think I, I'm sure I wouldn't have run that race that day with, without that sort of deception that got me into a different jolted me into a different headspace. And, and the, the, you know, the, the postscript is that I never, never went back I, I never struggled to break four minutes again. And in fact, I got faster in my next race and the race after that. Like, so once I j- discovered that I was capable of these faster times, it's like I never looked back. So, uh, you know, those, those are the kinds of, that that experience, I think, is, is really one of the things that seeded my that ended up sort of driving me on this quest to write this book because I was still trying to figure out how did that happen? How could that possibly happen? Four years of being stuck at a plateau and then someone reads me the wrong splits and I become a different runner.
1: That, that's per, so if we really want to improve our performance, we need to have somebody lined in our ear during a, <laughs> during a race. You're doing well, great. Did, you're,
0: you're running a sub-three-mile de- marathon. De- deception is a powerful tool. There's a whole kind of body of literature looking at the effect of what happens if you give people the wrong time or if you give them clocks that run slow. Or there's There's one study where they – gave people, uh, they, they, they set the thermometers wrong, so that the, the, these cyclists had, they were cycling in a hot room, but instead of saying like 90, the, th- the thermometer said 80, and they had rectal thermometers that were also rigged to, to read artificially low temperatures, and they performed way better. Now, it doesn't mean that, again, heat's not all in their head. Heat has real effects, but part of how we respond to heat is, is kind of fear-based, based on how we expect to feel, and if you trick people into thinking that they're cooler than they are, they can actually perform better in the heat.
1: I'm just kind of stuck on on trying to cycle the rectal thermometer, but we won't go into the, <laughs> into the mechanics of that. Now, to, to start wrapping it up, I mean, you came to my attention, Alex. You you had tweeted something about fascia, and in your book, you write about the human machine. What was you know describe fascia a little bit, and, and what kind of what is it, and and why did you kind of what you learn about it? What kind of piqued your interest with it?
0: Uh, well, I mean, you probably have are, are better able to explain than I am about, you know, connective tissue and, and, and how it's part of, you know, the body is more complicated than, than we've traditionally thought where it's just, you know, muscles and heart and lungs. But it's, uh, you know, over the course of not just writing my book, but of writing, uh, you know, articles about injury prevention and things like that. Uh, I've definitely come to a, a greater appreciation of of the role that things like fascia can play in, in staying healthy and also performing.
1: And, and that's an, and, and I'm going to go into that for a little bit on in the postlude. So for listeners, if you want to learn a bit more about fascia, you know, I'll, I'll talk a little bit after the conversation. And the reason why I asked that, Alex, it may or may not have been a fair question. I apologize about that, but I wanted to kind of I was just trying to to, to garner like what you as a and I'm not, I i do not mean to put you in a consumer standpoint but you're not you're not somebody nitty-gritty teaching this at, you know at the college level like I have or teaching it internationally at workshops you write about it for the consumer and and so what you know to to wrap up i guess my last question is what's been your biggest surprise as a writer the last few years you know you probably went into your writing career with a certain kind of mindset about exercise and what has been like your biggest change what have you learned the most or What's really changed your perception of exercise or as a as writing as a writer for Outdoor or sorry, Outside Magazine? Got to get the name right. Sorry.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I would say that you know, for me, the biggest change in my my approach now is compared to when I started writing about this topic maybe ten years ago, uh, it's been a gradual evolution towards increasing simplicity. That uh, you know, getting too lost in the weeds about you know, whether you should be at 75% VO2 max or 78% VO2 max and whether you should do 12 reps or 10 reps and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, whether, you know, dietary stuff too, that uh, not that this stuff isn't real and doesn't have an effect, but for most people, it's like step zero is, you know, get exercise, <laughs> uh, you, know, I do, you know, three or more days a week, uh, work up a sweat uh you know, uh make yourself uncomfortable ideally a little bit. Um and so I've I, I used to I used to get kind of excited chasing every new study that purported to show uh you know a performance benefit for some new workout or some new supplement. And these days I'm much more focused on the bigger patterns, the you know getting the basics right as opposed to sweating the details. So that's that's the the biggest evolution. Um in terms, in terms of just biggest surprise I would say in writing my book, I have a chapter on oxygen and free diving and stuff like that. I I just as a random factoid, I'll put out there that the world record for breath holding with no tricks, no like pre-breathing oxygen or anything like that, is eleven minutes and thirty-five seconds. And that still blows my mind.
1: Wow. I think I just just hurt my jaw dropping on the floor. I mean, that eleven minutes? Whoa, that's insane. And why would somebody I mean What's why would why should somebody pick it up? You you've, you've dropped some little nuggets in there. What would be what would be the like if for a reader for somebody picking up your book? Why should somebody you know what would they get out of it? What's going to be their their walk
0: away going? Whoa, that was cool. Yeah, I, I hope it would be with that people would walk away from the book with uh, uh you, you know a, a, on the on the sort of simplest level an appreciation that. Limits aren't absolute. They're not mathematical. The, the limits we that that feel physical to us are mediated by the brain, which means they're negotiable. But that, you know, that's that's a simple message that, if you want, you, that you want more than that from reading a whole book. And I would say what I hope people will walk away with is, is an appreciation for the incredible sort of diversity of human limits, what it's like to hold your breath underwater, like these 11 minute, 35 second breath holders, to climb a mountain, to, to try and lift a car off a pinned baby, all these different ways that we try and approach our limits and the different ways that our bodies and brains work together to, to create those limits. I think it's been fascinating for me certainly to kind of, get a sense of, you know, how, uh, all the different ways that the body and brain work together to define our limits. That's cool. Well, Alex, it's really been a pleasure chatting with you and, you
1: know, I really, I appreciate, you know, we kind of had to go back and forth a little bit. I had a little surprise trip to Asia in there. And, and so it's a pleasure, it's a pleasure speaking with you. How can people follow you? Obviously you write for outside magazine. Do you have uh, how do you, how do you put your information out? If it, anybody wants to learn more, what's the next step they should take?
0: Uh, probably easiest place to find me is on Twitter. My handle is sweat science. Uh, I do have a website, which is alexhutchinson.net. that has a little bit more uh, background, but, uh, Twitter sweat science is where to find my latest articles and just random stuff that I'm finding interesting.
1: And I'm going to have a couple links to a couple of your, um, outside columns down below. And then I'm also going to have a link to, to endure, you know, through Amazon down below as well. And just final note here, it's funny you said that thing about discomfort. One of the things I tell personal trainers or people learn to be personal trainers is that our job is to help our clients become comfortable being uncomfortable. Because being uncomfortable is the only time we're going to make changes in your body. So I love the fact that this is our first time talking and you, you hit the nail on the head with that. So and it's been great. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and
0: getting to know you a little bit. Thanks so much, Pete. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun to, to, to have this conversation. I appreciate the interest.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to go back and listen to an interview I recorded a couple years ago. One of the things I picked up on right away was I say you know a lot. That's one of the things I've really been paying attention to as I've been evolving as a podcaster. What I tried to do with a guest like Alex, and just to let you in a little bit, I actually found Alex on Twitter. I had, wasn't familiar with him. I saw him post a couple things. I started following him, realized he had a book coming out, and I invited him to be a guest on the podcast. And I really I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. There are different ways I have of finding guests and I do try to follow people on Twitter and if they're putting out good content, if they have a great voice or they have a a book that they're promoting, I'm more than happy to have them on the podcast. That's exactly how Alex and I met. And and before I go any further, if you want to see the interviews, if you want to follow along with what I'm doing, if you want to see exercise how-tos, go to YouTube and join the All About Fitness Podcast YouTube feed. I'm trying to post a podcast up there. I'm putting tips up there. I'm recording a bunch of great information that you can use to learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. This was just such a fascinating discussion because I love Alex's formal training as a physicist. He, went, he got a PhD in science before he started writing, and so when he writes, he comes at it from a very technical point of view, which if you've listened to the podcast, you know I'm a geek. You know I love that stuff. And yes, as I said in the beginning, HIT can be extremely effective, but it is still necessary to get out and do endurance training—run, hike, walk, cycle, swim. Yes, it's one thing to push to push hard and do high-intensity training, but we also need to remember to do our steady-state training. And that's exactly why I wanted to rerun this episode this month during during National Heart Month. I highly recommend *Endure*. It's a great read, easy read. And, and really will motivate you about what you can do with your body to push the limits of human performance. And remember, I'm now going to be on Clubhouse. I'm going to try to do at least once a week a live chat where I talk about recent episodes, I preview upcoming episodes, and I take, aud- I take questions and input from you, the audience, so I can gear the podcast around what you want to hear. Just look for Pete McCall on Clubhouse. And I look forward to connecting you there. You can also go to Instagram. Join the All About Fitness Podcast feed on Instagram. That's where I'll be putting up, I'll be putting up clubhouse dates. I want to also start trying to do some live interviews on Facebook Live, and I'll be posting all that stuff as I go. Again, one of my goals for 2021 is to make this community much more interactive. I want us all to work together to help support one another on our journey towards better health through exercise. So that said, as always, thank you for stopping by. And I do look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.